loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Patricia Eagle. Patricia is the author of Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. She discovered language with her first word, bird, and later found great solace in nature. Six decades of journaling also served as a life buoy, tangible evidence of a life explored in earnest while being tossed by the confounding experiences of childhood sexual abuse. Her experience as a high school teacher informed her master's research on the use of professional reflective journaling, a method to help educators better understand themselves and their students. A story gatherer, Eagle maintains an unyielding commitment to excavating and acknowledging what is resilient about her life and the lives of others as an author and a life cycle celebrant. She has seven stories published in four anthologies and online. Eagle lives amidst mountains and hot springs in South Central Colorado, where she watches the Milky Way splash across the night skies. And you can find more about her at patriciaeagle.com. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. Glad to have you. Uh, I'm I'm um, appreciating... I appreciated your book, and I'm appreciating being able to have this conversation for uh, a few reasons, uh, but they could be summed up under this umbrella. Um, you were willing to, with a lot of courage, kind of pull the veil back on a lot of the experiences that people don't uh, often talk about, sexual abuse, abortion, uh, um bad decisions, you know, kind of real life. <laughs> and, and so yeah. I, I really appreciate that. But could you tell us a bit how you what what pushed you to write the book and, and, um, you know, do the hard work of uncovering your life in that way? Well, let's see what what pushed me to write the book and do this hard work. Um, Really, Cheryl, I got to a place where I just didn't feel like I was living fully, and I felt like one of the reasons that I wasn't living fully was that I had still had so much shame, and that weight of shame was pulling me under. And I also felt the weight of secrets, uh, even though I had spoken to family and friends about my, my sexual abuse, uh, it didn't mean I kept speaking about it. And then all of the other things that you mentioned as well, which I feel like were consequences of having been sexually abused as a child, um, which reckless living and, and, and self-sabotaging behaviors would encapsulate a lot of that behavior, uh, that description. I felt like that I I wasn't able to step out of that, and I began feeling pretty desperate about it because I had 
a yearning to experience joy and to live fully. And I, I began becoming more aware that we just, we can't change what we don't want to talk about, what we refuse to talk about. We can't change even our own lives or a pattern that we see within our culture. And I actually wrote my book before hashtag me too, but um, I was glad that it came out or my manuscript was out to a publisher about six weeks before that. And before it really exploded, I know it was uh, that phrase was coined about 10 years before, as I understand. Oh, was it? Well, then, yes, yes. I think there was a part of me that wanted to join that, that group of courageous people that were telling their stories, maybe because I sensed some relief that they had as they told their stories Mm. and that that's a somewhat of a discombobulated ex- description of why I, I decided to step that's, in and tell mine. Oh, so, it, it connects with this this uh, thing that I say to clients pretty frequently, which is that shame is like a, a mushroom. It it does really well in the damp and the dark. <laughs> and it doesn't do very well yeah, when the light right. is shown on it. Um so uh, ironically, right. it, it keeps trying to make you not talk, but, but, you know, uncovering is, is what often addresses shame. Did you find that to be true for you? It sure did. It sure did. It significantly lessened my shame. And, and it also, uh, who was it? I think it, it was a psychiatrist. I read it in, in Sun Magazine. I don't remember her first name, but her last name was Halward, I believe. And she calls it voluntary vulnerability. And being, being willing to be vulnerable uh, allowed that, that shame to lessen. And it allowed me to, to be able to feel more clarity and, and, and integrity in my life. Just by speaking up and being real, being truly transparent, a popular word these days, but to live it is more challenging than a big grueling for sure. You know, when I received your book and and, uh, got exposed to the title Being Mean, it made me so curious um, how that was the title. And I I think it's important to uh, to share with the listeners where that title comes from, because it says so much about how we learn to keep things secret and hidden, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's very particular to your circumstance. Can you talk about that a bit? I sure will. Um, Being mean is a euphemism for masturbation. And my mother called masturbation being mean. And from my age of four to 13, my father and I masturbated together which as a little girl um it was of course very it was confusing for me but it also felt good and I didn't understand what was mean about it except that my mother would accuse him of being mean to me and then those two words came together and she would often accuse me of being mean 
as well. So it was very confusing. And um, how, how I dealt with that as a child was, um, you know, you, you really can, can confuse a child when an adult does something inappropriate and wrong with a child, because if it feels good, then a child will, will want to do that. And then if an adult then turns on the child, as my father did, which he was nice to me while we were being mean together. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but uh, he was nice to me then and told me he loved me. And then he ignored me and act like, acted like I was invisible or he actually would be uh, angry and cruel to me. So being mean, even though the title was chosen because of what it, it meant, you know, masturbation, it also was really illustrative of, of how um, my father was, became to me later, and then how I became to myself mm. by self-sabotaging, being, I kept, I was always told, why are you so hard on yourself? But it felt like the thing to do because I felt that shame and I felt wrong and, and my mother, uh, my mother's word was nasty that I was nasty. And so being mean took on multiple meanings. I was so aware as I was reading of all the times when you kind of, uh, in, in your early life, in your early adulthood, you knew something. For instance, when you, when you got married the first time, you knew that wasn't quite for you, but you couldn't, you couldn't say it. You couldn't claim it. Of course, that's somewhat related to being a woman in this culture. But um, <laughs> I also got the sense that you were used to not expressing yourself, mm -hmm. partly due to shame, but partly just due to not being invited to do that. Well, my voice didn't feel valuable. So what I said to myself was often you're not worthy, or you're not right, you're wrong, uh, you're not important, you can't do this, you're not going to succeed. Um, so my that voice that that victims develop is, is a self-sabotaging voice, indeed. Um, I, I know in that that particular situation of marriage, I was also, and, it, and let me just say at that particular time too, what's more important, I think, Cheryl, is to mention that when sexual abuse happens as to a child, they are a victim. <laughs> this, a child doesn't ask for it, uh, regardless of what people say. I know my mother said, I, my father said I asked for it, but I didn't. I didn't know that. But then you you turn to be a survivor. Um, it's it's necessary to suppress memories, to push them down. Because how else can you just go to school and and sit in class all day and listen and and have friends and 
then as a younger adult, how could I get my laundry done and, mm. and uh, get to college, which I wanted to do and did on my own or, or to handle meals or just all the ordinary things in life to survive pushing those memories down um, helps one survive for a while but they continually bubble up um, through that kind of self-sabotaging behaviors like you were saying self-doubt and reckless behavior over sexualized behavior and 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 the weight of shame uh, pushing down all of the time you the, know, I had a, the I had a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. To bubble up. No, that's I, fine. I, I had a thought while I was, uh, while I was reading, um, it's part of what I love about doing the show that changes, you know, it, it brings new thoughts. Uh, uh-huh. the thought I had was that when, um, someone has, let's say an auto accident, uh, it's, it's just, uh, expected that they will not remember the actual accident. That's right. Uh, it, it's it's blocked out. It may never return, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if someone cuts you off on the road, your body will remember, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you won't you won't remember in your mind. Mm-hmm. And there's so much talk about, uh, you know, memories of sexual abuse that get repressed, as if there's no way to understand that. But there is a way to understand that. <laughs> Uh-huh. There's a trauma in it, and that's uh-huh. what the brain does, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Is that yeah, how you? Yeah, like, I'm not an expert on on the trauma, but I can talk. I can speak to my own experience, and I certainly have read a lot about it after. Um, you know, my I'm in my 60s, and my my memories came up at age 38, and I've had a lot of therapy and a lot of help and and have also done a lot of reading particularly around trauma and how does because one of the most difficult things continues to be that doubt of how can i know what really happened how can i believe myself that's very traumatizing to someone how can i believe myself and yet it's very important to finally believe myself to not denigrate my memories um because of that doubt or because my mother told me that I was crazy when I spoke up about my memories or, or even when I was younger and, and mentioned things that I was wrong and, and bad for bringing those things up. But you're right. I mean, when a car accident happens or something traumatic and all those sensations are boom, you know, at, at peak, whether it's what you see or feel or hear or taste or uh, all of that, and it, it person maxes out, particularly a child, so that finally those things begin to numb uh, someone. They numbed me, and I had to stay numb in order to to be able to be okay later, mm-hmm. to be able yes. to be okay enough to go out and play or or to go to school the next day. Uh, we're, it, it, this is a bit of a jump, but uh, I think we've been talking about what that resulted in in your life. And one thing it resulted in is kind of risky uh, sexual behavior that 
that um, made it made it incumbent on you to have uh, a few abortions at a young age, um, which which is not a surprising thing. I mean, there's a pretty strong connection between a uh, early unintended pregnancy and abuse, as far as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you would, uh, just before the break, we only have a few minutes before break, would you share a little bit from the book about that first uh, experience of terminating a pregnancy? And then when we come back from break, we'll talk about that. Well, I as I look for it, I have my book handy. <laughs> as I look for it, I do want to say that um, child sexual abuse is a huge public health problem. And yes, multiple pregnancies uh, is one of those health problems alongside with anxiety and depression and suicide attempts. And for me, it was also um, migraines. Over-sexualized behavior is mm-hmm. not unusual either. So... I thought what I would do here is um, just when you said from the book, maybe read a small section of that. We just have uh, just a couple of more minutes. So a a small section would be perfect. And then we can talk more about it after our break. Okay. Well, I did have an illegal abortion at 18. And what I say in here is, it occurred to me that I've not even asked for any details amidst my raw determination to take care of myself. I did not ask this woman, the abortionist, about her background, the method she uses, or how long the procedure will take. I made the appointment and asked what it would talk. At the time, all I could think of was how guys could relieve themselves with an orgasm and then just move on without a second thought of the consequences. That is exactly what I want to do. Detach and move on. Take ownership of myself, of my situation, of my sexuality. Move on and not shed a tear. I have another paragraph, but I'll check in with you. Yeah, let's... let's, um... Let's come back to it after the break. I think that's a very good start uh, on what I was thinking of talking about next. And listeners, during the break, you can go to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's links to everything about me, including uh, a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Patricia Eagle, you can go to patriciaeagle.com and her book is available, Amazon. Barnes and Noble, everywhere you get books. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. 
Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress, anxiety, and relationships. Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel airs live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Patricia Eagle about her book, Being Mean, a Memoir of Sexual Abuse and Survival. And uh, Patricia, I wonder if you would would share just a little bit more of what you were reading, um, so, so many important uh, aspects of that that I want to talk with you about, but I'd love to hear a little more of it first. Okay, I will. And I want to thank you for asking about this because I feel very strongly um, about a woman's right to choose and not having had that at this when I was 18, which was in 1971, um, I, I wanted to have an abortion and had to seek out someone to do that, which ended up being what we call a backroom abortion and a coat hanger was used. And it was very dangerous and ended up being very difficult for a long time um, afterwards. So I read one paragraph about how I just, I didn't even ask for details when I called and made an appointment with this woman. And the next paragraph is, I hover above my body watching, not really experiencing what is happening on that bed, pulling on reserves of stamina and an ability to go into a numb, trance-like state without questioning how I learned to do something like this. I slip into what feels like a familiar mode of handling reality, dissociate. It appears this woman is using a straightened coat hanger, swabbing it with alcohol, then slowly sliding it into me. I shiver. Am I cold? I feel a stabbing prick and a couple more jabs. It's almost over, she says, pausing between words. That's it, three words, 
and no eye contact. I'm going to skip down, um, Cheryl, for a minute to the bottom of the page because, because women get so much criticism for this decision and rarely are the men mentioned at all. So at this point in my life, I had been with two men and I wasn't sure which one was the father. So I say, I'm talking about how I'm, I'm so sorry that my sister who took me there has to be a part of it or my girlfriend that drove me to the health center. Mm. But the two guys, Dave and Tim, I wish they both had to feel the chaos and desperation of doing something like this alone, something so personal and heart-wrenching, something illegal and dangerous, something I will be shamed for by so many, something that I had no other choice to do so that I could stay in college and move on with my life as casually as they were doing, with no concern about our having had sex and any consequences that might arrive from that. That's so relevant at the moment, isn't it? It sure is. I uh, mean, <laughs> I, it reminds me of a of a, a guest I had who wrote a book called May Cause Love. Uh, it was about her, um, her struggle to heal from an abortion she had, and feeling that there was no place she could really do it because um, people that were pro-choice wanted her to feel nothing but uh, happy that she could that she had the right to do it. And um, the pro-life people she encountered wanted her to feel only grief mm-hmm. and, or, shame. Uh, or shame. And, and as you did, uh, she felt both. Mm-hmm. There was grief, there was, you know, uh, difficult emotion about it. And there was also gratitude that she could uh, have that choice. And I think it's what's missing in the conversation often. So I appreciated uh, you highlighting that and, and how it really is something that unless a man chooses, basically falls on women. Mm-hmm. It does. And you know, I often get the question after my readings on why I think child sexual abuse persists, and I think it ties into this whole abortion topic. I feel like that one reason that that it persists is because of the power and privilege of patriarchy, that that patriarchy shuts a woman up or shuts her down, or in the case of pregnancy, it's all on a woman's shoulders most of the time. Mm. And whether that woman decides to have the child or put the child up for adoption or have an abortion, it's, it's nearly always on her shoulders because men have this free ticket and we still see it. We see it every week. <laughs> every day lately, I guess. <laughs> I mean, our systems, uh, our judicial systems and our systems in general in our culture just allow meant to commit child sexual abuse or sexual abuse or sexual harassment with impunity. So they're not really held accountable. And that frequently occurs around pregnancy. And, and yes, I was pregnant multiple ta- times. So I, I ended up, uh, I would say five times. One time was with twins. And every time what the men that I'd been with, if 
they got involved at all, what they said was, you're not going to have it, are you? Or what are you going to do? And they were out of the picture. And that was okay. You know, there's a story in there, too, about, as you mentioned in your introduction, I taught taught school for a long time. And uh, I taught high school in Los Angeles where the school, there was a school for pregnant teenagers. And these girls, half of them, half of, of them were from Los Angeles. Half of them were shipped there from all over the United States. Because if a girl got pregnant, she just got shipped off. We didn't really know what happened to her back then in the 60s. She just was gone all of a sudden. But it was on her shoulders. She was shamed. She wasn't allowed to stay in school. But the men, there was nothing that happened to the boys or the men. And and it wasn't always boys. I know when I taught at that school, my girls were pregnant for multiple same reasons that we hear now. I mean, they were pastors, priests, doctors. Not um, not always a peer. Neighbors. No, 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 not at all. I mean, and sometimes the, parents, of course. In the best cases, it was a boyfriend. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> How I felt. Because otherwise, it was more abuse. Um, it, it was abuse even with a boyfriend and that they... The boys didn't know how they they didn't have any modeling to know how to be more compassionate and responsible. Um, that and that's where we are now. How are we going to raise our boys? You know, how are we going to treat these men if we have one in four girls and one in six boys that are at this point in time disclosing sexual abuse? That's a lot of children. Indeed. How, think of all the perpetrators. And of yes. course, there's a high likelihood that perpetrators also were perpetrated against. There are. That does occur. I will say that it's more likely there are some women perpetrators, but very few. But women who have been perpetrated against rarely perpetrate against rarely. a child. Yes. It is more likely with men. But it, 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 I, I also like to be sensitive to that because... Um, it's not something to be expected of a, somebody that has been perpetrated against. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't mean to imply that whatsoever, yeah. but yeah. I do think there's, there's a, at least a damage to a person's compassion <laughs> that makes it possible to harm someone. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't think there's one answer to that. Is there? It's a, it's a harder path to be on once you have been um, sexually abused indeed um, and how we can get help for all of the children that have been sexually abused how can we get help for perpetrators that's one of the resources I list in my book is the association for treatment of sexual abusers because we do have a lot now granted some sexual abusers like the man that worked for Rockefeller Hospital, the endocrinologist, it turns out to have abused thousands of children. Um, so it's not always, you know, one perpetrator for every one child that's been abused. But it, how can they get help? Because they're at risk of self-identifying, and yet if they don't get help, they're going to more than likely continue perpetrating. And I, I have a concern about that. I do think that is if we start talking about all this more, if if survivors talk, 
about how their lives have been affected uh, amongst one another and publicly as I am or read books about it, that that will help. That will help people, you know, perpetrators, maybe they will have more compassion if they recognize the damage that they're inflicting. And also perhaps uh, what I hope for is that kids get exposed to the fact that they need to say something if something like that is happening. There, there's also that, you know, you were, you were kind of uh, shut down from ever sharing that with anybody. And I think that's quite common. You know, it seemed like a turning point in your book. Uh, I'll just read a little, a little piece of it. At another point, uh, it's the point where you had an abortion, but it turned out you were pregnant with twins and then had a miscarriage the next day. Uh And you say, from somewhere deep, deep within, compassion for these children, my situation and myself emerges. I imagine wrapping my arms around the the baffled young woman I am, lying on that narrow gurney, and I love her, just plain love her. Compassion for yourself. What had happened to begin to cultivate it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just was curious. You know, I never figure that a moment like that comes from nowhere. Mm-hmm. I, I always figure that something has been germinating uh, that then leads to a, that's a kind of a breakthrough for you, it felt to me, uh, that something allowed for that compassion. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what, what led that way? It, well, one thing it may have been is that I'd been teaching school and I, I love young people and I love children. And that uh, made my heart bigger. And I, I also had, not a year before that, I had been working at that school for pregnant teenagers in Los Angeles. And um, I ended up being present for a number of their births. And seeing what was going on in their families, uh, the, the very unhealthy behaviors, and and many of the girls had told me their stories. So I had, you know, compassion for others helped me come into a place of having more compassion for myself and recognizing my own confusion and and desire to be good. I, I wanted to be good. I wanted to do good. And that... It was a long, slow haul for me to to have that compassion put me on a stronger path because I I had so many unhealthy behaviors for so long, um, and my depression was debilitating, and then my desire to not be alive to to kill myself was was popped up too often, but I did. I did care. I cared for myself, caring for others. I ended up being able to make good friends, and many of those friends I've kept for a lifetime, and they helped me. There's one person that comes up in this book, too, who was a nun who was the principal at the first school I ever taught at, and we became close friends, and we are lifelong friends. and she told me all the time, I went by Patty then, you know, Patty, you know, if you can just influence one child, you, you're, it, you're doing good. And 
Patty, you are worth something. You are such a good teacher. And, and just to have one person, and there were more than one because of the friends I developed that also uh, tell me good things. So let us remember that, the good things that we can tell one another that can help, help each other when the going is difficult. I'm so glad you're saying that because I I feel with the people who uh, come to my office for counseling that, uh, you know, when they've had childhood or early adult trauma, um, they just, they're, they're so much better if they've had someone that was an exception. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're talking about. The, the seeds that are planted that, uh, Maybe our view of ourselves is not all there is to it, huh? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it sounds as if that was very powerful for you. And if we have had someone that's an ex- exception in our lives, let us be that for someone else <laughs> then later on. I wanted to mention, too, because you brought up compassion and the self-compassion, that I often get the question in my readings, have I forgiven my abusers? And I, I respond that I, I believe forgiveness can work for a lot of people, but it didn't work for me. I would say or feel like, okay, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. And I keep, keep doing it, and it just didn't really happen uh, for me. But what did happen is that I, I developed self-compassion and strengthened that, and I develop compassion for my abusers so no I didn't forgive them but I I found a way to learn more about their stories and their challenges and difficulties in life and why they acted as they did found found a way to uh, open up my heart to my parents toward the ends of their lives I really want to talk more about that uh, and uh, because you, of course, uh, I know you took care of your parents as they were uh, declining and really went out on a limb with them. So that deserves more of our time. And we'll do that after we get back from our break. Uh, listeners, you can find us both during the break. You can find me at my website, weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Patricia Eagle, go to patriciaeagle.com. We'll be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. 
Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Patricia Eagle talking about her book, Being Mean. And before the break, Patricia, you were talking about uh, your sense that, uh, or your your sense that you gained a lot of compassion for your parents, but didn't forgive them. And that's interesting to me in a few different ways, because I think a great deal about forgiveness uh, for many reasons. Um, That pretty much describes how I've experienced forgiveness. I never, I never, um, I've never forgiven an act Mm -hmm. for instance. But I've forgiven people. I've found compassion for them. And so it's interesting to me that that is not how you define forgiveness. Mm-mm. No, I, and again, I want to say that I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, I know it works for a lot of people. It works well for one of my sisters who's very religious, and that's just the thing. I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. Uh, I, I have a relationship with my my own spirit creator. But forgiveness is it 
all I can say is it just didn't work for me. I, I would go through the acts of forgiveness and say I'm forgiving, and it, I just didn't feel any comfort at all. Mm-hmm. But as I, I flexed my compassion muscle and worked at it, over and over each time I could feel it being a little bit stronger I could listen a little bit more to one of my parents and feel like I could hear what they weren't saying my patience I I think it's very relevant that neither of them would admit fess up Neither of them ever gave you confirmation, even as you became more and more clear about what had happened. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I was thinking about the truth of that and you making the decision when they couldn't really care for themselves anymore to go live with them. Uh, What a big decision to make. Yeah, I'm, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, really, I I, uh, I often um, used to bite off things that were a lot bigger than what I was ready for. One of the reasons that I did that is that I wanted to write my story, and I felt like it would help to just be right in the the murkiness of it all and it did and I did write half of my book at that point but I want to I want to mention Cheryl that I accept uh, this one time that my father did apologize to me before my memories surfaced again I I used to come home in my after I went away to college when I would come home to see my parents my mother often left they would have a fight. I had no idea what they had their fight about. I can guess that it had something to do with me. And uh, I would come home and she would leave and be gone for a night or two. And so one time I came home and my father was weeping. I'd never seen my father cry. And I sat down next to him on the couch and he, he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the things I've done. I, I don't know why I've done the, you know, these things. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I looked at him and I, I, I felt like we were in on something together, but I didn't know what it was. And about, oh, I don't know, six, six or seven years after that point, my memories came up and my father and I met uh, privately and he told me that he didn't know what I was talking about, bringing that up sexual abuse. And he said, we had a really wonderful family life. And then he recounted a life that was not anything like any life we had ever had. <laughs> the parts and, you did remember didn't match what he was talking about. huh? <laughs> and you know what I realized in that moment, and I've learned since, is that perpetrators also suppress memories so that they can survive. And they, as do victims uh, and survivors they they reconstruct their past so it it was something they they can live with 
that they feel okay about. And and I believe both of my parents did that. And my my mother, you know, she's from was from a time where all of her identity rested on being a, a mother and a, and a wife. And and when she had had times, my father was a very difficult man. He actually was mentally uh, unhealthy and had mental health issues. He and was very cruel and angry. And she she couldn't bring herself to leave him because then she would have been a failure at her, in her mind being a success with staying married even if it was a miserable as theirs were miserable 70 years of being together I think that is a, a pretty uh, I know that your dad uh, went to war uh I, I and I think generationally that's a pretty common experience uh, that people came back pretty broken and then tried to have these I don't know leave it to beaver kind of lives mm-hmm. that weren't quite possible under those conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think your your uh, your story is one I've heard before. I'll just say that. Yeah, yeah. think of all those people that continue to come back they used to call it shell-shocked now we know that they have PTSD and and unfortunately we don't have sufficient treatment for them even now and we didn't certainly didn't then they were just sent home and told to do the best they could and uh, it's very difficult on on our military and, and people I, I'm so sorry for that situation. Yes. I'm so sorry. You know, I, I wanted to back on the forgiveness and the compassion topic topic. Um, one of I had a writing coach that I had met at a journaling workshop. His name is Mark Matusik, an amazing man. And Mark, <laughs> in the course of you know, I, I hired him literally, and we worked online when I moved in with my parents, which gave me a, you know, a lifeline. And one of the things he did was tell me to make a list of, of story, impactful stories in my life. And, and from that, I began to work. And he used to read stories I would write him, and he would say, what would this story sound like if you weren't trying to make yourself look good? <laughs> That's a great prompt. <laughs> And I didn't realize I was, but, you know, it was that same thing that I was telling you about, that that neediness to make myself other than what I really was, not being comfortable with who I was. And now how does that tie in with the compassion and forgiveness that we were talking about? Mark Mark quotes in one of his books, When You're Falling Dive, uh, or no, when, yeah, that's it. He quotes this this. Um, Tibetan nun that was put in a cage for 11 years, <laughs> beaten and tortured. And uh, actually, she was put in a cage for 22 years. That, that, mm-hmm. And during the middle of those two, she one of the things she said was, hatred does not end by hatred. And I, I used to say that to myself with my parents, hatred does not end by hatred. Uh-huh. And so it's self-preservation I, in a way to try to find compassion. Yeah, it, it was. You're right. It was self-preservation. And also, uh, uh, 
willingness to to relate even to who I felt I knew had injured me, but still to relate because it, it, I wanted to understand them as much as I could. And I wanted to understand myself better. Yes. You know, there's a little piece of your book that uh, is is maybe a good example of how I had come to the conclusion there was something that resembles forgiveness anyway. Let me let me read that. But now this is uh, when your dad is in assisted living at the very end of his life. But now looking at dad sitting in the sun, I am again touched by confusion. I feel like I hurt dad by voicing my memories of sexual abuse, despite knowing that he hurt me terribly by doing those things. And even so, sitting here right now, I realize I love him and I'm willing to believe he loves me as well. I don't understand all this, how memories get trapped and surface, how love gets learned and bartered, why good people do horrible things and call it love, how love can rise through unhappiness, confusion, and control. I sit with dad in silence outside for another 15 minutes, then push him back into the dining area, up to a table where he will later have lunch. Uh I stare at the back of his head then without another word, walk away, my boots clicking on the linoleum floor. I stop under the archway of the dining room entrance, pausing as I look back at my dad, sitting there in silence. He never opens his eyes. That was the last time I saw my dad. That, that was a very beautiful, um, uh, I, I almost want to say, acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that would be a word instead of forgiveness. Um, there's mm-hmm. nothing you're trying to make different there. You're just with what's mm-hmm. what's happening. Yes, that's right. That's just the way it was. And I I don't know why I want to say he was at a veterans home, not an assisted living, because my mother was in assisted living, and what two entirely different worlds those were. That's a good correction. I thank you for that. <laughs> My mistake. Thank yeah, the- you, Bishop, for being with me today. Uh, we could talk for a long time, but that's the end of our time for now. Okay. All right. I well, really thank appreciate you. having you. Thank here. you. Thank you for having me, and and I I commend your listeners for listening to to this, and that's a step for them learning and learning more about child sure. sexual abuse. For step all to change it. Yeah. And listeners, you can find Patricia Eagle at patriciaeagle.com. Next week, I'll have Eduardo Strouch. His book, Out of the Silence After the Crash, chronicles the 1972 crash of a plane in the Andes. He and the other survivors spent 72 days on a glacier before they were rescued and were changed forever. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.